History has known many great liars. Copernicus, Goebbels, St. Ralph the liar. But there have been none quite so vile as the Tudor king, Henry VII. It was he who rewrote history to portray his predecessor, Richard III, as a deformed maniac who killed his nephews in the tower. But the real truth is that Richard was a kind and thoughtful man who cherished his young wards. In particular, Richard, Duke of York, who grew into a big, strong boy. <laughs> Henry also claimed he won the Battle of Bosworth Field and killed Richard III. Again, the truth is very different, for it was Richard, Duke of York, who became king after Bosworth Field and reigned for 13 glorious years. As for who really killed Richard III and how the defeated Henry Tudor escaped with his life, all is revealed in this, the first chapter of a history never before told, the history of the Black Adder. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by guest Ben Paul to talk about the comedic alternative history Black Adder Series 1, The Black Adder. So Ben, welcome. Hi. You want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself uh, for those who have not listened to your previous appearance? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I was previously on the episode about Beckett. You should check it out. Yeah, I'm just some guy who listens to podcasts. I like medieval history, <laughs> especially hearing about and reading about religious stuff in medieval history. And I specifically wanted to talk about this because Blackadder, the first series, was the one I watched the most growing up. Um, anyone of my generation... This was on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. I think Series 2 we had, but we watched it less. Series 3 we had on cassette tape, and Series 4 I really only watched as a grown-up, although it traumatised me like everyone else in the country when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen Series 4, it has a truly tragic ending, full of pathos. It's it's devastating. Is that World War II? Or... Uh, World War One. Okay. Yeah, they never did a World War II thing. For some reason, they ruled it out very early on. I think it's a bit mm. too grim. Yeah. Well, compared to World War One. I. I think it, World War One was maybe easier to spoof, but we'll get into that another yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this is what I grew up with. It's known to everyone as the least good Blackadder. <laughs> Having said that, I've never seen the specials. But it has a special place in my heart for many reasons, which I'm sure we'll come to. I watched this when I was... I don't know, maybe my early teens or something like that. I watched this with my parents, but it's been a long time ago. And I'm not 100% sure I ever did watch the rest of it. Mm. I think I might have only watched this season or mm. series, uh, as, as, as the British call it. Yeah, so this is uh, Black Adder Series 1, starring Rowan Atkinson as Edmund, Duke of Edinburgh, the titular Black Adder. 
Brian Blessed as King Richard IV of England, who I know best as Augustus in I, Claudius, and as Boss Nass in the <laughs> Star in Star Wars Episode One. Also on the subject of my growing up, he was King of the Hawkmen in Flash Gordon. I don't know mm. if you've ever seen mm-hmm. that. Mm-mm. Oh, man. That is the campest movie ever made. And he's doing the same thing <laughs> as he does in this movie, which was very confusing to me as a kid, but he's a big character. Yeah, he does that really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's kind of similar performance to Augustus, actually. Yeah, in a lot of ways. It, it's it's very broad and comedic, but it's he's a huge character. Yeah. Oh, man, he's he's my VIP of this show. But as I said yeah, he's before, great. Like, yeah, we'll come to it. Oh, also Flash Gordon, because you're a big Hot Fuzz fan, mm-hmm. Timothy Dalton in Flash Gordon is a god. Oh, yeah. oh, fun. you got to check it out. All right, I'll definitely have to check that out since, yeah, Tim- Timothy Dalton in Hot Fuzz is like a revelation. Yeah, man. It stars Elspeth Grey as the queen. Her name is Gertrude, according to the... Her name is actually Gertrude of the Netherlands, which is clearly just a Hamlet joke, according right. to the cast list. Right. I do not think her name is ever spoken in the entirety <laughs> of the show. Right. Also, Robert East as Harry, Prince of Wales. Tim McInerney as Lord Percy Percy, who I found was somebody named Alonzo in the live-action 101 Dalmatians adaptation. Oh, really? I don't know who Alonzo is because I have not (laughs) seen this movie in solidly, I'm sure, at least a decade. But I really enjoyed it at the time because a lot of dogs. Yeah, that's that. That helps. Yeah. Tim McInerney also went to university with my high school history teacher. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Lord Percy Percy had a special place in his heart. And he was also in uh, Game of Thrones, which you covered recently. Oh, who was he in Game of Thrones? He has a minor part in the later series as Lord Glover, who's kind of the foil to, to little oh. Lyanna. So yeah, he's that's a right. Lord of the North, and he's often very stoic and refuses to do things until Lyanna beats him up. That's right. He looks very different now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was 1983, so it's a difference of, let's see, now I have to do math, like Mm. approaching 40 years, Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. And uh, then finally, Tony Robinson is Baldrick, who I now know who he is because I covered Maid Marian and her Merry Men, (laughs) and he is in there as the Sheriff of Nottingham. He is, yeah. I think that was his uh, brainchild after Blackadder. Right. He's known particularly as Baldrick because he's Baldrick in all four series and specials of Black okay. going forward. But he also did an archaeology show on Channel 4 for years called Time Team. And uh, he's generally just a very pleasant, enthusiastic man about history. And he got involved in politics, didn't he? He's uh, he's famous also for being a member of the Labour Party. Yeah. And uh, he's involved in internal Labour Party politics. Same with a lot of British people like Eddie Izzard, uh, the mm. actor Richard Wilson. A lot of them mm. have this strange side trench as kind of Labour Party in a politics. Right. I guess in the US you sometimes have actors get involved in politics, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it it really is a good thing here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess you get shouted at a lot. And a lot of people don't want the hassle. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also, by the way, I'm a little jealous that I, uh, did I, did I see that you had a beer, uh, whereas I am doing this as a... Uh, uh... <laughs> well, you're, you're really early in the morning, so I haven't... Yeah, I'm doing this at 10 in the morning, so it's really not, uh, it's really a little early for me to have a beer. <laughs> yeah. So I have tea. Yeah, yeah. At least, uh, where I am in Portugal, I visited the British shop last week and I'm drinking Magna's Irish Cider. Oh, nice. Yeah, it is. That sounds nice. Yeah, it is quite I'll tasty. i pick up some cider. Recommended. I always, I used to drink Magna's a lot back when I... 
occasionally could go to England when travel was possible <laughs> right. before times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll do it again. Well, yeah, one of these days. Yeah. So the first section is the enumeratio or recap, and I'm going to get us started off with just a brief orienting recap, but then since we have six episodes of TV, I figure we'll just chat a bit generally after that about the series as opposed to necessarily going purely episode by episode. Good sis. Good stuff. The first series of Blackadder takes as its premise the claim that Henry Tudor lied about both the character of Richard III and his own supposed victory at the Battle of Bosworth. Although Richard III was killed, the Yorkists were victorious, and the throne went to his nephew and ward, Richard IV, who ruled from 1485 to 1498. Richard IV had two sons. The titular Blackadder is his younger and less favored child. Uh, who was named Edmund, who also, it turns out, accidentally killed Richard III. He subsequently then finds himself engaged in a variety of more or less dastardly plots to either secure power or ensure his security. Mm -hmm. Can I just say something straight up about the, the premise of the show, the alternate history yeah. thing? Lots of people, including the people who wrote it, like Richard Curtis, who went on to do Four Weddings and Notting Hill and all of this, mm -hmm. and uh, Rowan Atkinson, who of course went on to be Mr. Bean. Blackadder and Mr. Bean are like his Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Just come back right. to them. When you want a new house, just do one of these. Um, but a lot of them are on the record as saying, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. And from the start, when you watch this, it really annoyed me this time, but it always has as a kind of history bod. Whether there's any need for this weird alternate history. Right. Yeah, it starts from this really weird premise. Well, first of all, Richard IV will come over this in... Uh, your true and false section but uh richard duke of york wouldn't have been old enough to have adult sons for one thing but also why not have shakespeare rewrite history why have henry the seventh rewrite it or why not have edmund be the right. forgotten son of henry the seventh and his brother be the young henry the eighth right it seems it seems like an odd decision yeah to some extent it's a decision that especially for something comedic like this i I kind of like, actually, because it means then that it's like, oh, okay, this is just a completely different thing, and I don't have to worry that much about the fact that everything having to do with all of the main characters, mm -hmm. that's just invented and wrong, and I don't have to worry about, like, who <laughs> these people are or whether they're good portrayals of historical figures because they're just all invented. Right. Yeah, 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 I see that. That, that, that helps me a little because I, because sometimes when there are certain people that it's like that they're, you know, they're making various like weird choices about how this figure is portrayed. Like I could see getting like very angry about like an actual portrayal of Henry Tudor right. or of Henry, the young Henry VIII as if they were major characters. Yeah, true. But it, it I don't know. It feels like it's threading a needle for me. And I don't know. There's something that annoys me about it every time. Like it's not really really well done mm -hmm. it just seems to be on very shaky ground from the start and it confused me even as a kid yeah yeah it very much is like okay i mean so clearly this is not a thing that could have happened that we just right. had like a king who ruled for 13 years mm -hmm. <laughs> who we just have ridden out of existence yeah i do like the shakespearean references that mm -hmm. you have especially they're really heavy early on mm -hmm. where uh richard in particular the richard the third and his one episode where we have uh first mm -hmm. him and then his ghost uh, has some great lines mm -hmm. so he's got a nice reversal of now is the winter of our discontent uh, yeah. which is uh made glor uh, made glorious by the son of york that it's uh something that i can now try to remember exactly how the uh, how the line is oh it starts um, it starts this is the summer of our sweet content i've written down yes 
<laughs> yes, uh, made made winter by this tutor jerk or whatever the rest of it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, as to the Shakespeare stuff, I think they didn't need to put it in the credits because it's public domain. But I think they took pleasure in putting in the credits additional dialogue by William Shakespeare. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah. And then you also got the little Macbeth bit at the end of this first episode where he oh, runs really? into the three witches in the woods and they foretell that he's going to be king one day, which mm-hmm. I guess he very briefly, in fact, is. Yeah, not wrong. Hey, yeah. <laughs> sorry to jump in on your introduction. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> so at this point, you know, we can really just kind of... Uh, yeah chat about things so and in particular it's uh it's fun that you know edmund is actually the one who kills richard the third because he mistakes him for a horse thief exactly and watching that as a a horse yeah (laughs) here horsey that really shocked me that i watched this as a kid and there's a very grisly decapitation within the first like 10 minutes yeah uh, followed by a couple of minutes of like corpse humor like weekend at right. Bernie's type stuff with blood everywhere. There's a lot of like dragging the corpse al- like yeah. around and then it's like, oh, who has his head? I forgot his head. <laughs> but as a kid, I found the, the ghost of Richard III terrifying. The ghost I thought was pretty well done. Yeah, it wasn't bad. There's some shaky 83 effects at the very end where the head is separate from the yeah. body. But uh, Peter Cook has this very chilly British authority he would have made a good straight richard iii as well if he'd ever gone into straight yeah. stuff which he never did and it could also have been fun if this was just actually at the court of richard iii mm-hmm. yeah yeah could have been a nice lead up to the final episode and they could have even had the the boys be uh, be edward and richard yeah exactly that's what i'm talking about with the ultimate time right but on the other hand i'm certainly not going to complain about the fact that if they'd done that i don't know if they would have been able to give brian blessed so much to do <laughs> because i don't think he would have really been the right pick for richard the third as uh, in terms of what they're going for so. Quite. yeah yeah and he is fantastic yeah yeah he's, he's he's so good in this he's he would have made a great henry the eighth yeah that's yeah that's true mm-hmm. i yeah it's too bad he it's too bad he didn't didn't like his younger days get the chance to uh, to play henry the eighth as far as i know <laughs> He would have been very solid at that. Yeah, for sure. And there, the the alter, there's a lot of alternate history. I mean, because there's also like a crusade that gets invented, which we'll talk about <laughs> a bit later. Uh, <laughs> the overall dynamic then is also this dynamic in which uh, basically Edmund is uh, neither competent nor likable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and yet is our main character, which creates this weird like, are we rooting for him? Are we not rooting for him? Mm-hmm. Uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, it makes him very easy to to mock and to laugh at. There's a lot of he pulls a lot of silly faces, and his voice is weird and strangled, which yeah he didn't do in later series. In later series, Blackadder is famously very witty and sardonic and sarcastic, and mm. it's uh, Baldrick who's comically stupid. But here they got the kind of mix wrong, and made Blackadder the stupid one. Right. Okay, that's interesting that they changed that. Yeah. Because actually, even like Baldrick then is the one who he keeps coming up with ideas and plans that, mm-hmm. that then Blackadder takes credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In a very like wealthy white man sort of uh, sort of dynamic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that's the thing. Like the phrase "I have a cunning plan" is maybe the main catchphrase of all four seasons. Mm. And in later series, whenever. Baldrick says, I have a cunning plan. It's kind of like, here we go. We're going to hear something really, really stupid now. <laughs> and it always is. And, you know, he gets beaten up and clipped around the ear and uh, told off for it all the time. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, he actually tends to have a cunning plan. And often Blackadder <laughs> says, like, that's ridiculous. And he says, I have a better idea. And then says the exact same plan. Exactly. 
And also worth mentioning for one of the later episodes, which treads on dodgy ground, that Blackadder is basically an incel. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, he is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, very unlikable. Yeah, I mean, because that even, not the incel part specifically, but his issues with gender even also really kind of show up in that second episode where, so this guy, uh, this uh, Scottish mm-hmm. uh, gentleman, Dougal McAngus, shows up and he makes a claim and has letters to back it up that his father had an affair with the queen. Mm-hmm. And the extent to which Edmund is very chill about reading out loud these letters that publicly, you know, in context would then insult and embarrass his mother Yeah. in an effort to, first it seems he thinks illegitimize uh, his, or cast doubt on the legitimacy of his brother, but then as it turns out, when some when they actually figure out the dates, it means it would cast doubt instead on his legitimacy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's very willing to burn any bridges. He's absolutely, I don't know, his dynamic with his brother is weird because he's very subservient to him but loathes him, calls him a bastard constantly. Yeah. And he's understandably completely poleaxed and terrified by Richard the Fourth, Brian Blessing. Which is understandable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who can't even remember his name and calls him, among other things, what, Edna, Osmond, Edgar. There's a running gag that he can't remember his name. Enid, I think, shows up Enid. at some point. <laughs> Right. And there is some there's some weird masculinity stuff then definitely happening there, too, in that he is uh, very clearly presented, despite, you know, he also has this, this like incel stuff going on, but he's also clearly presented as not quite matching up to the typical examples of traditional masculinity that right. are demonstrated, certainly by his father and or maybe not his father. I don't know. But the, uh, the man who is supposed to be his father. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and by his by Prince Harry, who's not a particularly mm-hmm fascinating character he's kind of a slightly slimy tony blair type right Right. yeah he's very dull yeah but he's also like very polite and he knows several languages as he often shows off and Mm -hmm. he makes all the right jokes and knows all the diplomatic language and so on so um yeah it's very much the runt of the litter right and then there's some kind of odd dynamics too that he's really trying to you know make a name for himself he's like very into fashion Mm-hmm. At some point, I think it's in this episode, in the second episode, where mm-hmm. he eventually ends up challenging Dougal McAngus to a duel mm-hmm. and uh, to say that, you know, these letters are clearly fraudulent once he figures out that they would, in fact, make him illegitimate, mm-hmm. uh, potentially, were they to be real. And uh, he loses badly. Mm-hmm. And starts offering things to him, including he goes into really lavish and loving detail about his uh, clothing collection, in particular his extensive collection of cod pieces. Yeah, and I think his ornamental pomfries I wrote down here, whatever ornamental pomfries are. Right, I'm actually not sure what an ornamental pomfrey is. It made me think, just because of the word, maybe it's the puffy sleeves things you wear on your shoulders. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I actually... I actually don't know offhand what a pomfrey is. <laughs> There's a gap in your knowledge there. I know. I feel like I should know what a pomfrey is. I'm actually looking up what a pomfrey is and seeing if I can It'll be good figure it out. See, I'm trying to figure it out quickly, but now I'm just getting uh, the, the Harry Potter character, uh, Madame Pomfrey. Oh, okay. Yeah. On the subject of the clothes, the costuming in this series is incredible. It really is. Yeah. And, the, and they do a really good job with using the costuming to illustrate character aspects. Mm-hmm. For sure. And in latest, well, they said on this one, they went way over budget making this. Because hmm. not only are there very lavish costumes, there's also huge interior sets. There are many, many exterior shots and horseback stuff and things like this. And in later series, particularly two, three, and four, 
everything happens on a soundstage. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. very, yeah, very Yeah, there limited. are a lot of exteriors here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, they must have spent a lot of money just on stuntmen, especially for a BBC show. Right. Yeah, I mean, because there's even, like, there's all of these little things, like, he keeps having these sort of pratfalls where he'll end up getting kind of caught up and he's, like, hanging from a tree. <laughs> like, that clearly must require some stunt money. Absolutely, yeah. No, but coming back to the costumes, in particular what stood out for me this time, was uh, Queen Gertrude, as he pointed out, her headdress, mm -hmm. which uh, uh, bore similarity to the magnificent headdresses of Beckett. Right. There was uh, Dougal Macangus himself, who is this great, like, fur-bedecked kind of wild man, just back from a crusade, and he really looks like it. Just matted in filth, basically. Right, well, because he also, by the way, he has this bit where he is, uh, he's kind of presenting himself to Richua, or not to Richard IV, because Richard IV is still on crusade, but to mm. Harry. Yeah. And he uh, pours out here my spoils from the crusade, and he pours out first just a bag of severed heads, and then says, oh, sorry, that's my overnight bag, and then uh, provides him with the treasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's literally come with heads tied to his, like, belt. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, the Witch Smeller Persuivant is an amazing costume. Yes, that's a that's a great cape. Yeah, yeah, very kind of ominous costume. Looks very much yeah. uh, kind of savage and druidy. Yeah. Yeah, very. Th I found that character terrifying as a kid. Yeah, and they they definitely also like they with the uh, the Spanish princess who will show up in episode four. That's a. Mm -hmm. uh, a really well done costume and actually are the archbishop too like they really do like they go all out for you yeah. know okay now we're going to transition from his elaborate court wear to his elaborate mm -hmm. ecclesiastical garb yeah yeah totally and actually talking of uh, coming back to the exteriors you just reminded me with your archbishop speak the investiture ceremony was filmed in a place called brinkburn priory mm -hmm. so that wasn't soundstage stuff and there was also all the exterior shots of the castle of this incredible place in Northumberland called Annick Castle. Mm -hmm. That dates back to Norman times and is English heritage. So again, they must it must have cost a bomb just to get these places on camera. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Archbishop episode I found very entertaining, especially because it actually harkens back to your last appearance on this podcast and mm -hmm. that it has a, uh, a big uh, Beckett reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, looking back now... That's probably my favorite episode this time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of the stuff about, what is it? Well, we're going to talk about false relics later. Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll talk about the false relics later, but for now I'll just say that the the listing of the false relics mm -hmm. is amazing. Mm -hmm. It includes that they have a, they have a number of fingers of our Lord, mm -hmm. of our Lord Jesus Christ, because mm -hmm. I think uh, Percy Percy says he has one and kind of breaks it out. And Baldrick says, oh, I thought those only came in packs of 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got lots of questions about relics later. But there's also uh, pardons and curses you can buy, which I assume they're talking about indulgences. Yeah. Right. And uh, some of these pardons are signed by both popes, which makes historical sense in a way. I'll talk about it later. Yeah. It's a little off in terms of the timing on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of the stuff. Sir Tavis Mortimer, the king's hired killer, has a Turkish helmet with a sword sticking out of the top. Did you get the reference as well that one of the archbishops was struck by a gargoyle while swimming off Beachy Head? No. Oh, okay, because Beachy Head is a huge set of cliffs in the south of England from which people, okay. unfortunately, very sadly, often jump. So there's no way right. you'd be swimming off Beachy Head in the first place, implying that he was right. thrown from Beachy okay. Head and then they dropped a gargoyle on him. 
Right. Because, yeah, the, the, whole, di- the whole situation with the archbishops is that uh, we, we begin with the, the episode with this, uh, the king and the archbishop are both trying to convince this wealthy and I assume childless lord to give their lands to the, to give his lands to the church or to the crown. Mm-hmm. And the archbishop is able to emerge victorious uh, through some graphic descriptions of the torments of hell. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, he, this archbishop does not make it very long after this. And it turns out he's, yeah, the third and the third archbishop to have been killed by uh, King Richard IV. Mm-hmm. This is actually one of those moments where despite the fact that uh, we're not supposed to like Edmund exactly, you kind of have to appreciate his at least pragmatic intelligence in terms of the fact that he very much is like, yeah, no, Richard murdered them all. Mm-hmm. Whereas Harry seems very dedicated to this such tragic accidents. <laughs> this poor man, he just completely forgot he was wearing this spiked helmet as he ran toward the archbishop <laughs> to receive head, head down to receive his blessing. Exactly. Uh, it's uh, great coincidences like that. Yeah, in that way, it's a bit weird because they're... Harry is the credulous one, and Edmund is the savvy one. Right. And thinks Harry as a more pious person, who, as Richard IV points out, actually believes in God. Right. (laughs) Yes, Edmund has made very clear he doesn't. In fact, even when he's being invested with his office as Archbishop, because that's the uh, the plot of the episode, essentially, is that he gets named Archbishop with the idea, basically, that, you know, the king will be able to control him. Mm Mm-hmm. And also maybe doesn't care if he ends up instead <laughs> right. killing him. There's a great scene where um, uh, Edmund comes groveling to Brian Blessed yes. and immediately gets told to shut up and go away. And then uh, is it? he pulls him in again. Richard IV pulls him in again and threatens him, if you cross me, I will do unto you as the Lord did unto the Sodomites. And that's when, sorry, Brian Blessed goes down from this very broad, shouty medieval king performance and becomes Augustus for me. Right. It's a very yes, Augustus. kind of much quieter threats. Yeah, yeah, real power. Yeah. Uh-huh. Although, unfortunately, I think that scene is also one of the, uh, the scenes in which we start having a series of rather unfortunate gay jokes. With the sodomites in particular, where, so he says that, and then there's at some point this conversation about what did God do do to the sodomites, and then uh, somebody, I can't remember who, but somebody says it can't be worse than what the sodomites did to each other. Oh, okay, I must have missed that, or must have blocked it out of my mind. Right, yeah, that's a pretty uh, lousy joke, and very much of the time, not very progressive times. Yeah. So that's just, that's a, that's one of the things I will say. There there'll be more that will come up, unfortunately. But that was definitely one of the things that uh, that marred the series a bit for me is that there's a lot of uh, humor around yeah around homosexuality that stuff. around sexuality which, uh, and homosexuality and yeah. The sad thing also is that these performers would have been progressives at the time or would have thought of themselves as progressives at right. the time and might look on back on this and cringe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's it's certainly not the only thing that does that. I mean, there's stuff, you know, American stuff too from the <clears throat> from the 80s that has not held up well in that particular respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so not giving it a pass, but it's certainly something no. that, yeah, I would hope that if this was coming out now, they would not be uh, engaged in that sort of humor. Oh, there's so much uh, that could easily be ducked these days. Yes. Yeah. 
I love religion and the role of religion in this episode, because this is also the one where Richard, he's talking about, you know, how he's kind of come to the decision to appoint Edmund. And he says, in consultation with the Lord God, his son, Jesus Christ, and his insubstantial friend, the Holy Ghost. Right. (laughs) Which is perhaps the best description of the Trinity I have ever heard and one that I would love to use in my everyday (laughs) life uh, as as a Jewish person describing the Trinity. (laughs) It's one to use going forward for sure. What I like is I after season sorry, not season. After episode two when he comes back from his crusade, there's stuff like he randomly attacks Prince Harry in this Archbishop episode, mistaking him for a Turk and trying to kill him. Yeah. And later in the Witch Smeller episode, he's barred up in his room smashing at the door with his sword all the time. <laughs> and there's elements there that he's come back from turkey with some kind of traumatic stress and he right. just, he's increasingly violent and unhinged as the series goes forward i'm not saying they were aware of yeah. that at the time but that's what you'd map onto it these days yeah that he certainly has this there's this element that like he in his mind he hasn't entirely returned from crusade yeah he's 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 just uh hell-bent for war and yes. um well in series two he he gets the gates of constanto constantinople locked behind him and all he has is a small fruit knife against 10,000 Saracens so right and he had like managed to escape that yes yeah. so grizzly <laughs> oh yes yes the the implication of him having killed hundreds of people with a fruit knife is uh <laughs> oh speaking of which um in the first episode of foretelling at the battle of Bosworth field Edmund falsifies this figure that he killed 400 peasants yes mm-hmm. 400 is were there really tallies in those days? I'm not suggesting anyone claimed to have killed 400 people, but is that was that like a thing? The part about the nobles actually mm-hmm. that of like you like keeping track who killed which noble that actually rang more true to me than specifically you know I killed you know these 450 peasants. It wouldn't have quite worked in the way it works here, but it is something that like shows up in chronicles and things like that sometimes. And also it was the kind of thing that might show up in Arthurian literature. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, that not being real, but that being the kind of a kind of model in some ways that people are talking about basically, oh, well, you know, and then Lancelot killed like 700 people or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's like ages in the Bible or body counts in um, right. the Iliad. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I mean, the Iliad is probably the model that they're using in some ways, Uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, that, you know, those are, you know, things that people have been familiar with. And so, uh, you know, that probably is to some extent the model of these exaggerated body counts that do get ascribed to Mm -hmm. particularly heroic individuals. For sure. It's not quite something that I think fits into, you know, realities of what people were doing and talking about after battles, Mm -hmm. but it's something that very much does feel like it's coming out of medieval literature. Sure. And I remember um, Edmund says, is talking about the nobles he pretends to have killed. And Harry is shocked that he killed one of the dukes, the wild man of Warwick. Edmund says, yeah, it took some doing, I tell you. And Harry says... You can say that again. I killed him myself at one point. Which I think is a <laughs> but despite saying that, doesn't actually seem to entirely question it. He's like, oh, yes, yeah, he does take a lot of killing. I, I killed him too. <laughs> but people get up, people play dead. Who knows? And that's also the one he's sort of listing people. And as he's listing people who are unaccounted for, Edmund keeps taking credit for them. And then at some point he's like, the Bishop of Bath and Wells. And Edmund cuts in, we'll never walk again. And then Harry's like, we'll conduct the Thanksgiving service. <laughs> And it's particularly funny that it's the Bishop of Bath and Wells this time because he comes up as a character in an episode in season two. Hmm. 
where he has the most incredible name in all of art, literature, fiction, and history. In series two, he's called the Baby Eating Bishop of Bath and Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Is he literally baby eating? Uh, yeah, he's a disgusting pervert, as he says to himself at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they, uh, they, they're good in this show about coming up with epithets for people, and that comes mm-hmm. up a lot in, uh, in episode six, where they have the, uh, the six most evil men in, men in England, that they, uh, they have some interesting descriptors. Yeah, I think uh, Sean the Irish Bastard wouldn't play well these days. Especially no, since he's just a, no, uh, especially since he's just a drunk character. But uh, yeah, there's yeah. Some, yeah, there's some magnificent <laughs> ones in there. Guy the Glastonbury, Friar Bellows, Three Fingered Pete, Jack Large, Sir Wilfred Death. I really liked Sir Wilfred Death. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a delightfully unsubtle. <laughs> uh, we're introduced by to Sir Wilfred Death. He's set upon by three men in uh, what look a lot like clan hoods. Right, they are. Yeah, they do. But what I've actually seen in Spain, where I lived for a few years, is that, by a long time, obviously predates its role in American history. I've seen um, people marching in Spain wearing these things. For Holy Week in particular. Exactly. Semana Santa in Zaragoza is non-stop drums. Don't go there. It'll drive you nuts. Yeah, I felt very glad that in my year when I was in Spain, I ended up being at a place at which was I was in Vic uh, mm. during Holy Week, uh, during uh, Setemana Santa, as I would call it in Catalan. Uh-huh. And uh, Vic is a relatively quiet place just in general. Yeah. And uh, that week also was similarly relatively quiet. Mm-hmm. And uh, they even were like very nice. They actually even like kept the archive open for most of it. It was great. Oh, grand. Perfect. A long <laughs> weekend in the archive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a town in Aragon where they play the drums for, I think, 24 hours. Yeah. Blistered hands and all the lot. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. uh, I had a friend who was in Valencia for, uh, for Holy Week, and that was, I think, also a bit, a bit rough. <laughs> yeah, man. It's fascinating at first, but after, say, three days, you're done. You want to get out. It's like, no, I'm not here for this. <laughs> Please just let me sleep and work. Absolutely. I love in the Archbishop episode two how Edmund ends up basically carrying out his father's wishes by essentially persuading a lord that he would far prefer hell to heaven <laughs> because heaven is for people who enjoy that sort of thing. Right. And hell is really the place where he can like continue, you know, carrying on his adultery and murder. Yeah, and incest. Right. Yes, because he also, he at first sort of tries to say like, oh, well, you know, you can't be that bad. I'm sure you won't go to hell. And he's like, Mm -hmm. I've murdered a lot of people and committed adultery a lot of times. And one of them is with my mother. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to (laughs) change tactics here. (laughs) And then episode three is then also the one with the big Thomas Beckett referent, Mm -hmm. which uh, I actually think the comedy of this bit is really worked really well for me that he's trying in this extended way. Richard the fourth is trying to explain basically the reference to uh, the queen uh, I think he starts by saying, never will I have to say, well, won't someone rid me of this turbulent priest because Edmund's being so, you know, quiescent and all of that. Right. And so she's like, what? Why would you say that? And so then he has to go through this really extended explanation at like five times. Yeah. Finally, then culminating in him loudly saying, so he said, won't someone rid me of this turbulent priest? Right as a couple of drunk knights pop up and said, oh, yes, he wants us to go and rid him of this turbulent priest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the while, it keeps cutting away to these drunken knights entering the hall, and you're just like, oh, God, here we go. 
because you also you keep thinking that him saying it that he's gonna you know get these guys going and then it's like oh wait no they're not there yet but then they're like oh okay I guess he's no that's not gonna, it's gonna that's not gonna be what happens and it's like <laughs> he has to say it again because the queen still doesn't get it yeah this um episode also features mine and my brother's personal favorite character which is the messenger boy yes the messenger boy is fun uh, a lovely rotund maybe 18 19 year old with this very yeah. flat estuary accent he's always my lord my lord and imitates the body language of everyone he's talking to even to the extent right. of pushing back when they're trying to push him out of the door <laughs> and um the messenger boy was just the funniest thing to me and my brother growing up and he's the most downtrodden put upon character i think in the whole thing poor boy because also he's going around and he has news and he knows that he has news but he doesn't really seem to to care who he delivers the message to (laughs) yeah yeah and he's always just getting yelled at shouted at pushed away told to go away told to bring better news right Yes, uh, in particular, it's in uh, in episode four. I think his news is considered to be not to the uh, to the king's taste as we once again embark on some major wars. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's a lot of talk in this of wars against France, Switzerland, Spain. There's mention of the Germans and the comical codpiece that Edmund accidentally wears to his investiture is called the Black Russian. Yes. <laughs> I like the way his mum just walks past and is just like, what are you doing wearing this ridiculous thing? And you hear the boyoyoing sound effect. It's just, but also it's... the bit that he's wearing that and then it's announced that he's going to be archbishop and then he actually takes the hat from one of the bishops and places it on the codpiece. Yeah, non-stop. Cheap laughs all the way. It gets, But it does get me every time. It's a very funny scene and it's played very well. Yeah, yeah. And the, as I said, that episode is, I think, uh, you know, one of the... The best ones, uh, you know, the bit, the bit where they're disguised as nuns actually also, I feel like, overall mm-hmm. works fairly well, including that he does manage to basically tell this very complicated story about basically disguising as nuns not for a real reason, but, but, but just for fun. And this mm-hmm. is what ultimately kind of gets him out of having to be archbishop. Yeah. <laughs> the Hessian undergarments. Yes. <laughs> the, the nun kind of wigs like, oh, I don't blame you on wanting to check out those Hessian undergarments. <laughs> for sure it's funny that the man dying at the start of the episode uh, who leaves all his goods to the all his riches to the church is the duke of winchester who is still to this day i think the richest landowner in the united kingdom as it is now oh really yeah so i think that's a reference to current history i mean they must have looked in a reference book at the time to find out who's the richest person in the world i think he's worth something ridiculous like 12 billion pounds or something yeah the the poor the poor duke of winchester stupid money Stupid money. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's just, that's just far too much money. He he should be giving that away to somebody, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure he should be giving it away to the Catholic Church. No. But... <laughs> certainly not these days. Oh no, I think they're doing okay, financially <laughs> speaking. There's a there's some um, obviously more a historical stuff in the interactions with Dougal Macangus. Edmund's title at the time is Duke of Edinburgh. Right, and this is a period where the English do not have any particular control over Scotland. No, that's kind of the point of the episode. It's quite confusing. And in the credits, Richard is labelled as Richard the Twelfth of Scotland. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking a very alter- alternate timeline here. We've also skipped the whole, you know, the Scotch, uh, the mm-hmm. Scottish uh, managing to get free of England uh, back in the thirteenth century or uh, the fourteenth century. So yes, we're just sort of skipping that one. Yeah, yeah, but. 
there's a bit there where there's a reference at the feast where Edmund is announced as the Duke of Edinburgh and Dougal MacAngus says Duke of Edinburgh and as Scottish as the Queen of England's tats. Right. Um, <laughs> I think that's a slight dig at the Queen's husband, the current Queen's husband, who is the Duke of Edinburgh. Right. <laughs> There you go. But mm-hmm. yes, but yeah, but at the at the time, yeah, it's uh, not doesn't quite make sense that he would be the uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Right, and Earl of Roxburgh and Peebles, which also is called. Right. Yes, and he uh, he he does loot. Well, he he seems to lose all of that, but then I guess he doesn't <laughs> because he does ultimately manage to shoot poor Dougal McIngus out of a cannon at the end. A rare uh, preserving there. English control over Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably talk about the uh, the incel episode. That's this being the one that in per, uh, the one that in particular, for a number of reasons, did not age well. This was definitely my least favorite here. Mm-hmm. We start by he's uh, he's like on a rampart. We hear first of all this really unfortunate extended metaphor comparing her body to a castle that she is allowing to be invaded mm-hmm. that she shares with us. Mm-hmm. And then realizes that it's Edmund, not Harry, and promptly throws him off the castle ramparts. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Edmund then basically is like, all women are terrible and I will never, ever be anywhere near a woman again. And if any woman asks about me, you should tell him that I'm this venomous predator and that women are my prey. Mm-hmm. Which, eh. Yeah. But it's, it's you know, it's... Edmund is made out to be the stupid one. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's saying, look at this asshole. Yeah, so I don't think it's endorsing that, no. but then the problem, well, I think that something said the biggest problem with the episode mm. is the fact that then it goes into what is essentially a kind of extended kind of fat joke, basically. He initially changes his tune when he finds out he's supposed to marry the Spanish Infanta. Mm -hmm. But then when he sees the Spanish Infanta and she is on the heavier side and not conventionally gorgeous, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden he is completely disgusted by her. And the comedy there feels like we're supposed to basically agree with him on that. Exactly. It is kind of, look at this short fat person. And uh, her sexuality and the fact that she's comically levicious is supposed to be horrifying. Yeah. Uh-huh. On that subject, I would I would call it kind of, I don't know if this is a, a good reference, but kind of saucy postcard humor. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where the kind of henpecked pigeon-chested man is being chased by a big lady in a swimsuit. Right, who's, you know, aggressively trying to have sex with him. The horror. Yeah, but I also, I do mean aggressively, because they also, I mean, they use this for additional comedic effect. There's mm-hmm. this scene, which is also really uncomfortable, in which he has Baldrick uh, pretend to be him and have sex with her in the dark, mm-hmm. which feels rapey. Yeah. Because she's having sex with him under false pretenses. Right. I mean, she thinks that he, she, it seems that she thinks he's Edmund. Mm-hmm. It's presented as a kind of madcap misadventure. And right. it's a bit more troubling these days. Yes. And yeah. then also he is presented as having basically like a face full of uh, injuries and two black eyes. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's like the idea that, oh, if a man has sex with this like larger woman, she's clearly just going to like horrifically injure him. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, so it's not great. No. Also not great yeah. is the weird extended that he his plan before that is that he is going to pretend to be gay. 
mm-hmm. so that she will not want to marry him. Schwitzer's an extended, I, I don't know if the Earl of Doncaster and his sexuality is a reference that they're supposed to make or if they just picked a random earldom. No, I think it's, it's transmitting in code because they never actually use any word that actually means gay right. or homosexual or anything like that. They use a bunch of synonyms. So when he says, pretend that you enjoy the company of men, and he says, you right. don't mean like the Earl of Doncaster, then it's actually right. quite a well-delivered comic line. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's wrong... a well-written joke. Yeah, there's on paper, there's nothing wrong with the premise of some dumbass pretending to be gay so that he can get out of a date or an arranged marriage or whatever. Right. But you can do it well or you can do it and see it age badly like this. Because when I was a kid, yeah. like, obviously... I thought this was fine and funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I watch um, it now. But yeah, but it's very much like, yeah, but it's very much emphasizing these like tropes of like all gay men are effeminate in this particular way. Mm-hmm. Although then it goes into the odd reversal of this that the reason this plan fails is because she thinks he's just trying to dress up like a Spanish nobleman. Yeah. Which uh, I don't know what implication they're trying to make there. That's that's very much of its time in grouping all of these kind of Latin countries together as right. one. I think what they're thinking about is kind of Medici, Renaissance, kind of flowery, slightly flashily dressed kind of Italian culture. Right. But just yeah. lumping every country in, in Southern Europe together. Right. I, from experience, and this is nothing against them, I wouldn't say Spanish men are flamboyant dressers or known as flamboyant right. dressers. No. The kind of dudes rock type guys. Right. But yeah, uh, I don't know. The the way I was reading it did feel a little like being like, well, being gay is bad. And also being a foreigner is bad. Mm -hmm. And all foreigners are sort of vaguely gay coded. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a sort of weird choice overall. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing to watch as a British person who is lucky enough to live abroad. And probably as a British person who who lives in the UK. It's just like, oh, okay, they... (laughs) They, you know, they think the Spanish, Portuguese, French, the Italians are all the same. Right. They're all, they're all continental and vaguely effeminate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's quite cringy. Yes. I mean, you know, and to be fair, Americans, I think, also have taken from the British that yeah. unfortunate attitude toward continental Europe. So, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, yes, uh, certainly. <laughs> I, I would never defend the United States and particularly not now. So uh, no, no. I'm definitely not going to say we're any better. No, no. What I will say is there are three fantastic performances in this episode mm-hmm. and plus another one I'd like to talk about. The three fantastic ones are by women in the episode, appropriately. Mm-hmm. First of all, obviously, Miriam Margulies as the Spanish Infanta. Mm-hmm. Now, are you familiar with her work? I'm not, now. Oh, okay. Well, she is a national treasure, Miriam Margulies. Mm-hmm. She's a legendary chat show guest. Like, mm-hmm. I would urge anyone to go and see her on the breakfast shows in the UK or on Graham Norton. She, okay. I saw her telling a story about Laurence Olivier the other day that had to be heard to be believed. Like, 20 seconds in, she says something, and the whole audience stops and then just dissolves. There's literally a moment <laughs> where you hear the audience gasp. It's, it has to be heard to be believed. So look up Miriam Margulies' Laurence Olivier. But um, she was also Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter movies. She was... Um, oh, my gosh, she was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's done voiceover work in Babe and similar role doll stuff. Yeah, an absolute national treasure. And she's not given much to do by the script here. The script is borderline no. or completely insulting. 
but she really goes for it. And yeah. uh, her Spanish is great and her facial mm-hmm. expressions are fantastic and she plays the character big and funny. The character is funny. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. It could have just been a grotesque, but she is funny. Yeah, no, she's a, it's a great performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look up Miriam Margulies, her, her credits are like as long as my arm. She's in her 80s now. She's an absolute legend. Um, another member of the Labour Party. There you go. The second fantastic female performance is Tully Applebottom, which mm-hmm. is the peasant woman who Edmund marries oh, yes. in an effort to avoid marrying the Spanish Infanta. She cannot stop right. laughing. She thinks getting married to the Duke of Edinburgh is the funniest thing that's ever happened to a peasant girl like her. And she has a lovely West Country accent. Her husband turns up at one point, who is, I think, Little John from Maid Marian. Oh, so the same okay. actor. There, there's the crossover. But yeah, she's fantastic. She has like three minutes of screen time and she's hysterically funny the whole the whole time she's on screen. The third performance by a, a female character that I love is the little girl playing Princess Leia of Hungary. She is so good. Yeah. I really liked her. Uh-huh. She does so well. The way she laughs at the archbishop who bends over to marry them yeah. is so authentically childish that it feels like it was a decision on the day. And... I really, really love that moment. It's a very sweet performance. Again, she's given a thankless task and they've coached her very well or she's a great little actress and she really acquits herself. Do you know anything about her? Like, did she go on to do anything else? I did actually look her up and she's only done this and another kids TV show and then gone disappeared into private life. Yeah. Yeah, nothing much. I know that certainly happens with some child actors and I I hope that's a choice that she was happy with. But it's, uh, but yeah, but she, she was great. I mean, in this and uh, the next episode too, uh, she also was, she shows up there. And the way that she laughs at things in particular, Mm -hmm. that it's just this really fantastic expression of childlike delight. Yeah. In a way that feels very natural and perhaps is. Yeah. uh, And like in this kind of unadult silly kind of way. It's very sweet. Yeah. The other performance I wanted to talk about was the Queen of Spain's translator. Did you recognise him? Oh, no, I didn't. Okay, so this is Jim Jim Broadbent. (gasps) Oh, my God, it was? It is. uh, The Oscar-winning Hot Fuzz alumnus Jim Broadbent of Great Big Bushy Beard. And also another Harry Potter, of course, (laughs) uh, from uh, uh, Professor Slughorn. Yeah, he's basically dressed here as the painter Velasquez. uh, Right. Basically in the same costume. And he has a, a great role there also which is just about the only levity in the unpleasant scene in the dark you were talking about earlier right that he's there and he's still translating (laughs) right and uh he's got this funny accent what is he like and there's lots of stuff like it's nice that we're here to talk alone together but of course he's there in the middle Right. And uh, yeah, he's very funny in this episode also. Yeah. And I also like, I really liked that also that aspect of poking fun at the dynamic of uh, having a translator potentially even for these sort of intimate moments and conversations. (laughs) And, you know, that being something that's presumably necessary in situations (laughs) like this, where you have these arranged marriages that are bringing people from foreign countries and, you know, you don't necessarily have a common language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, those are the uh, things I really enjoy about the episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. Uh, yeah, and definitely there were definitely these great performances, and uh, yeah, the interpreter was the uh, the the comedy bit that I really, I think, in a lot of ways liked best. Yeah, so. it really delivers. Yeah, we then move into our witch hunting episode, and this is the one that I would say is probably one of the more heavily anachronistic ones. Mm-hmm. 
in that it is clearly, it seems really clearly to me to be drawing not just on the 16th and 17th century stuff when witch persecution is at its height, but particular, it seemed like they're really drawing on a kind of Salem witch trials mm-hmm. vibe. I don't, I don't know how much time the British spend talking about the Salem witch trials. I know Americans spend a lot of time talking about the Salem witch trials. Yeah, they're, they're very well known here, thanks to things like the Crucible and so on. Right. But yeah, I mean, because there's very much that vibe in terms of like the courtroom, like the courtroom very much feels like the crucible. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. It's hysterical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That like that emphasis on the panic, the very kind of like broad animal centric comedy Mm -hmm. of uh, of the horse uh, who is uh, who is kind of brought in as a witness. Mm hmm. Uh, the talking horse. Yes, the talking horse, who of course doesn't actually talk, right? I mean, so we, uh, at some point there's a confession that's signed by him and there's, the signature is just like he's like stamped his hoof on it. Right. Uh, so you see like a horseshoe. Yeah, uh, decent joke. But obviously, you know, he never actually speaks in the courtroom because he's a horse. For sure. Uh, yeah. The bit about him giving him carrots and carrots are the food of the devil. And I appreciate the one like kind of clap back, which is like, it doesn't say that in, if they were the food of the devil, why does it say that in the Bible? Yeah, and the devil offered, took him up to the mountain and offered him a nice carrot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think would be a great addition to the, uh, to the New Testament. Nothing wrong with that at all, except I would miss carrots. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I don't mean to insult carrots. <laughs> I like the fact that the witch smeller finds his precedent in the appendix to the Apocrypha of the New Testament. Yes. <laughs> That's a solid Bible joke. I'm always here for a good Bible joke. There's lots of throwaway stuff in this episode. What is it? He says he saw, he was seen talking to his horse last Gareth's tide. He was married to this old woman on the feast day of St. Jacob the Turgid. There's, I'm going to talk about some of the feast days <laughs> later, but there's some great saints feast days. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the the trial I think is really interesting. There's also the claim that he uh, that he impregnated a woman with a poodle. <laughs> John Grumbleduke. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate. I, you know, it's nice to see like the poodle broken out. Well, this one was like, yes, that's my son that I gave birth to. <laughs> <laughs> what else there? There's uh, doesn't he have a cat called Bubbles, whose actual real name is Bielza Bubbles? Yes. Yeah, which is, uh, again, a decent uh, linguistic joke. Uh, Milk, milk, bloody milk. You see, bloody milk. Real hysteria type stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so as we said, that very much felt uh, very akin to the, like, 16th, 17th century uh, witch hysteria. Mm -hmm. Although I think they did do a good job in the the early bit. I really enjoyed also the talk about the different kinds of omens. Yes. That they uh, said that they have a kind of litany of these uh, these strange omens. It was like a fish having tea on the like on a beach somewhere. <laughs> it rained phlegm. Yes, and then and then Percy Percy, who's not very bright, says, "I saw a horse in the courtyard with two heads and two bodies." <laughs> to which Edmund, who is our kind of resident skeptic, is like, "You mean you saw two horses?" <laughs> Oh, and also, I, I would be amiss in not mentioning that a cow was seen re- reciting Chaucer, and Chaucer was seen in a field mooing. Yes. Was he around at this time? He was earlier than this, wasn't he? Yeah, so yeah. Cha- I mean, so Chaucer is dead, but they would have been familiar with the works of Chaucer. <laughs> yeah, could have been ghost or zombie Chaucer, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it is supposed to be a strange omen, so I'm, I'm on board with the reference that implies that Chaucer is around and mooing. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with that, actually, as a historical reference here. Glad to hear. 
Yeah, since we're since we're post Chaucer, uh, I'll yeah. I'll take all of that as just a reference to uh, <laughs> everybody is very much aware of the figure of the late Geoffrey Chaucer. Good stuff. Uh, there's also a weird <laughs> foreshadowing of the current crisis we're in now, mm. where they uh, decide to go to the village. Lord Percy says everyone there is dying of plague, and yeah. Edmund says, "Oh, you know, they're just exaggerating. Any excuse to get off uh-huh. work." And I was just like, yep. "Oh <laughs> man, like, oh. that's heavy." That episode in general, a lot of the Black Death stuff felt like it hit a little too close to home. <laughs> uh, they also, they have the king who's kind of like sitting, like lying in his uh, lying in his room and he's like feeling under the weather and somebody very casually is like, oh, it's probably just Black Death. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, we're at that stage now. <laughs> and all of the kind of hesitancy about then going into his room and it's like, no, don't go. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, later in the episode, here's a Canterbury thing. In Canterbury, they still have that ducking stool. Did you see that? No. Oh, okay. It was in the high street when I lived there. It's, it's over. There's a tiny little humpback bridge on the high street, and there's a ducking stool okay. sticking out of one of the pubs. I don't recall that, at least. Okay. Because he mentions ordeal by water, and he says, right. no, ordeal by axe, which is just as fair <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, like, ridiculous ordeals. Uh, there's also, like, a test that he has to undergo where he's put in a table, and there's a dagger and a crucifix, and if he picks up the dagger, then he's witch yeah but it's really it's just like you've got a 50 50 chance here yeah another um comedic misstep i think in this episode which annoyed me again even as a kid is when they escape from the courtroom that's a weird little scene yeah it's this odd so it seems like what they're trying to do is they're trying to now kind of make fun of this dynamic that they've set up earlier mm-hmm. of uh you know so and you know there's like a brilliant plan and our you know and we're going to or, or what's the what's the way that they put it uh the play with the plans oh i've uh, got a cunning plan yeah so we've got a cunning plan and so it's that we hear or we they hear that they have a cunning plan mm-hmm. we don't hear what the plan is because we instead kind of cut to the guards talking about their dinner plans yeah and then we also don't see the plan carried out because it just like does like a cut yeah, forward to they've escaped mm-hmm. and i see what they were trying to do in terms of subverting the look we have a cunning plan mm-hmm. bit but it also sort of felt ultimately like it's like, could you just not think of anything? Yeah. And <laughs> I think if that seems like a nod towards kind of Monty Python type comedy. Right. But it's not well pulled off. There would have been, you know, in Monty Python, maybe there would have been an animation or, you right. know, there would have been a holy hand grenade type situation. Right. It just it, it felt like it didn't fit in with the comedy of the rest of the series. Yeah. It was dark. Yeah. Yeah. Too dark. Yeah. Although I did think it was an interesting bit. So uh, first of all, we do have the appearance of Edmund's wife, uh, Princess Leia of Hungary, mm-hmm. who uh, shows up and thinks that he's very funny looking with his head shaved, mm-hmm. uh, as it is before he is burned, and passes on a doll mm-hmm. from his mother. And based on this doll, I guess the queen is in fact a witch. Yes. Since the doll turns out to be an effigy of the witch smeller, uh-huh. and when it is dropped into the fire, he catches on fire, and the flames then eventually burn out, and uh, Edmund and his compatriots are rescued. Yeah, yeah, terrifying. Again, terrifying scene when I was a kid of um, the witch smeller being consumed by flames. Yeah. Um, which implies, well, it's implied the audience knows from the start that he's the lead witch or whatever that he's pretending to look mm-hmm. for. Because he has glowing red eyes. Right. <laughs> and acts like a psychopath throughout the entire 
Right. It's the glowing eyes thing that it's like, don't other people notice this? I mean, this is like my thing with that uh, with BBC Merlin, which I love. Yeah. But it's that every time he does magic, his eyes glow. Oh, okay. and nobody notices this for a full six seasons. Right. Okay. Five seasons, however many seasons there were. I never but saw that. But that literally show. every time he does marriage, like a uh, uh, marriage does a uh, does magic, something very mm-hmm. dramatic happens. And as I said, then like literally his eyes like glow orange. Oh, okay. And Arthur's like right there, and like magic isn't allowed, right? right. So you know he's he would be upset if he found out he was doing magic. And Arthur's literally standing right there and never notices that his good friend's eyes glow <laughs> constantly. Right. Yeah. How did this slip by? At the end, is she doing a, a Bewitched thing from the TV show Bewitched? I think so. It's right. been a long... I've, I've watched some Bewitched, but it's been a long time. So, yeah. But, yeah, but I think that's what that little, like, wing... Wiggle of the The nose. way that the... Yeah, the kind of cut thing that happens yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, we get a good, like, shocked face from uh, from the little girl, too, when she uh, realizes that her, her mother-in-law is a witch. Right. Again, <laughs> there's, there's lots of moments in this show that feel more like a kid's show. Yeah. Not least Edmund himself, who has weird body language, is always pulling a face, has this horrible strangled voice, so is played very much as like a, a kid's character, I think. And that witch stuff yeah. makes me think so as well. Yeah, because there's something a bit weird about it, because it has that vibe, but then it also has a lot of jokes and comments that are deeply inappropriate for a children's show. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in addition, I mean, there's even like this like very casual, when it's talking about the war, it's talking about the like women being raped by soldiers of seven different armies every day, which also is like a joke that has not aged well. Yeah. But in addition to not having aged well, it's also like very not appropriate for children. No, and I don't know what I thought of that particular line when I was a kid. But Blackadder, I will also say, is very prostitute heavy. Yes. So very early on, I think Percy gets called a brainless son of a prostitute. Right. Now, the only reference for a word that sounded similar to that that I had when I was a kid was Protestant. And at the time, I didn't know, you know, I was ignorant of the differences between my Catholic upbringing and whatever Protestantism was. I was living in the south of England, it didn't really matter. But I didn't have, why would I have a frame of reference for what a prostitute is? The second season right. is just full of them. But I, I do like I do like the idea that there's an assumption like, oh, he's the son of a Protestant. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't even think anything of that. I think it just went way over my head and I carried on watching for the funny voices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because it, it is, I mean, so there's a lot of jokes that are not kid-friendly, but I can see a lot of them being the kind of thing that because they're mostly verbal mm. as opposed to visual, that they would kind of go over, go over kids' head. And I mean, and even the comedic but also kind of rapey and not great uh, sex scene, mm-hmm. the point of it is that it's all in the dark. And so we, we just see the screen is just black, but then we hear them uh, talking and, you know, including the uh, our mm-hmm. translator popping yes. in at various points. Yeah, yeah, similarly confusing was Blazing Saddles, which I watched as a kid, and also has a sex scene mm-hmm. that takes place in the dark. Yeah. I had no idea what was going on, genuinely, not for years. Right, yeah. That's, <laughs> I, so I think it is interesting that uh, because of uh, kind of how it sets things up, it's A, I assume, is something that makes sense according to the rules of what's allowed to be on television. Mm-hmm. But also does mean that it's the kind of thing where you could probably, you know, it seems like you would get away with having kids watching because all of the things that aren't kid-friendly would probably just go over your head as a child yeah and you don't know maybe the parents in the background are either choking back laughter or they just have their fist in their mouth the whole time right (laughs) (laughs) 
Because it's also this show also has a laugh track, which I was sort of surprised by. Yeah, I couldn't tell you if it was filmed before a live studio audience or not. Yeah. I don't know. I forgot to look that up. That that would be interesting to know. Right. Because I also I think of that kind of laugh track or audience commentary. I, I think of that as being very American, though I don't know why I think that and if that's accurate. Right. But I can't think of another British show I've seen that has that. Yeah, TV shows at the time. Yeah, I think they they pretty much all had it. But I don't know what was live okay. and what was yeah. filmed separate. Obviously, the exterior stuff. But um, yeah. as for castle sets. There's some quite complicated camera work. I don't think they would have had a live audience. Right. Or maybe an audience watching the VT afterwards. But yeah, but it's interesting because then it also is like the laugh track then gives mm-hmm. a signal that a joke clearly happened. Right. Even if you don't quite get it. Yeah. Because yeah, I think, because there are also, I mean, there were things, I'm sure there, I think there were a couple of things that I can't remember what they were offhand, but there were definitely a couple of things that I have a feeling were very specifically British jokes that I missed. There was a couple of like gratuitous insults of Morris dancers yeah. which I only understand as a thing because uh, because uh, Mabel Slattery, who was on for uh, the uh, Maid Marian and her Merry Men episode, was yeah. explaining that to me because that also has a couple of gratuitous insults of Morris dancers. <laughs> they are pretty badly maligned. My parents' generation have now reached the age where they're, everyone's acquainted with a Morris dancer or two. <laughs> you don't want to badmouth a lot of them. I know some good ones. Are they still are they still a going thing? Like do people still do that? Oh, like I'm from the Isle of Wight in the south, which is very rural. It's basically Hobbiton. And okay. um yes, that's still a thing. Okay. And in Mabel's okay. part of the world world as well. She's from the West Country. She'll she'll know exactly what I mean. Right. <laughs> so like are are people like are people of our generation getting into Morris dancing? Oh wow. Uh it's been a long time since I lived there. I could find out for you. And we could add it in the show notes. Right. I, I just be I just be curious. I mean, not that I want to get into Morris dancing myself, but I'd be curious as to whether that's an you know a thing that there are uh, you know people of our yeah. of our generation doing these days. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Actually, I've no idea. Something to look up. I know there's a lot of um. It's not LARPing. Historical recreation. So getting into blacksmithing right. and battle recreations and stuff like that. So I don't yeah. see why not. Yeah. Edmund has, I guess, his actually kind of most uh, dastardly turn in some ways toward the end in our final episode. Mm-hmm. And to, to be fair, I will say I can't totally blame him in terms of perhaps being on board with like deposing and killing at least his, his family. Yeah. Given sense. his brother just almost executed him as a witch. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just that this one is like, I, I don't know, like honestly fair. Yeah, fair, fair enough. enough. Yeah, fair yeah. enough, dude. Do it. There's a weird continuity to this series that other yeah. series don't have. Like he's still married, mm-hmm. chopping off Richard III's head at the end. Doesn't really stay with him, but it means he triggered the entire events of the series. There's a continuity right. that other comedy shows don't feel they need to have. And I think it's another yeah. weird decision they made. Yeah, because I mean, in many ways it's very episodic, but mm-hmm. it also has, uh, yeah, absolutely has that continuity, mm-hmm. which includes, of course, that he, he did manage to hold on to his Scottish titles uh, after episode two, because he shot, which makes sense, because he shot uh, Dougal McAngus out of a cannon. Yeah. But that then he loses them right at the beginning of episode six, yes. because his father on St. Juniper's Day mm-hmm. decides to, uh, that's the day in which you give, uh, you, I guess, give gifts to your loved ones or you kind of give uh or you kind of give uh you know important possessions or titles to your loved ones mm-hmm. and he gives away Edmund's titles to uh to some cousin mm-hmm. yeah not to Chiswick this time 
Richard IV's catchphrase throughout the show is Chiswick fresh horses. So Chiswick <laughs> seems like his Batman. Right. Except for one time where he says Chiswick fresh horse and he actually eats a horse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have two sons, Harry and another one. <laughs> Come up, other one. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and Harry gets a whole litany of things, uh, including he's made Sheriff of Nottingham. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, so he gets this long list of new fancy titles and lands, and then yes, Edmund is stripped of basically most of what he has left. Mm -hmm. Except Duke of the Privy or something like that. Yes, he remains Lord of the Privy. (laughs) He takes off, and this is when he gathers up the six most evil men in England. Uh, Mm -hmm. We talked a little about Sir Wilfred Death. Mm-hmm. I really like a uh, guy of Glastonbury oh, yeah. who is uh, holding somebody up at knife point and says, uh, you know, your money or your life. Mm-hmm. And then the guy then at some point is like, oh, this is all I have. But here, here's my money. And he's like, great. And then he's like, shoot, did I say your money or your life? I meant your money and your life. And there then stabs him. <laughs> he's a very smooth kind of highwayman type character. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he's fun. Yeah. What do you think of uh, Friar Bellows administering extreme unction? That also was uh, was maybe not uh, not so great. Uh-huh. Yeah, that uh, that bit where he's uh, you know presented as it's 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 this weird. It's not even clear in terms of how the scene's set up in terms of whether it's supposed to be consensual or not, which kind of makes me feel like they don't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a funny joke if things were clearer. Right. Yeah, just the, just using the language, I mean, administering extreme unction. Haha, <laughs> that's a Catholic thing. Okay, now I get it. Right, like I kind of, like the line I could see being funny, but it's like a little, but it's like less funny when it like seems very possible that he's raping her. Yeah. And that that's being played for laughs. Uh-huh. If it was more obviously consensual, and I think they could have done that, mm-hmm. then I think it would have been funny. But yeah, it's it's dodgy as it stands. Yeah, so we've uh, well, so we've got our our six evil men, and this is also where we have uh, some good uh, as they're getting to the last one, to uh, who will ultimately be uh, be Jack Large. Mm-hmm. They go through a series of possible nicknamed Jacks. Mm-hmm. Where at first they just say Jack, and then they kind of list a number of uh, of possible Jacks that it could be. Okay, I didn't write these down. Uh, I actually did. I I need to go and find them because they're in my other set of notes. But I think I did. I, yes, yeah, so I didn't write them all down, but the one that they did ultimately settle on, I did write down, which is unspeakably violent Jack, the bull-buggering beast killer of no fixed abode. <laughs> because the previous Jacks are all like the, you know, horrible murderer, etc. Jack of Bath and Wells yeah. or wherever he is. Uh, yeah. And then we finally get to the last one and he is, the, he is of no fixed abode. <laughs> Yeah, that's very Python-esque. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah there, that clearly is a, a major influence here, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This wasn't long after Holy Grail, I don't think. Yeah, Holy Grail is, uh, I think, 19, 1975 or something like okay, that. Okay, so less than 10 years. Yeah, so this is clearly, so at least some of the humor is definitely very much uh, kind of tied to that. Yeah. For sure. And it turns out, uh, well, there's an annoying Morris dancer who follows him around on muleback. There's a particularly funny... Um, galloping on horseback scene right and the mule is it i think he says you know you can come with me as long as you can keep up but we actually see the mule uh, vastly outstripping uh <laughs> outstripping the horse <laughs> but in a very cheap kind of back projection 1980s oh like, yes again very python <laughs> it's like yeah exactly it's like one step above them just both carrying coconuts essentially <laughs> 
turns out, though, that this retired Morris dancer mm-hmm. is the one person who could ever stop Edmund, his childhood rival, Philip of Burgundy. Mm-hmm. The hawk. Yeah, so he, uh, or as he was known in his youth, the thrush. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so he reveals himself as Philip of Burgundy. He imprisons Edmund, who manages to get out because he is imprisoned with this uh, this guy who's clearly been there a while, for um, uh, Mad Gerald. Mad Gerald, yeah. He is laughing maniacally. Uh-huh. And we meet his friend, Mr. Rupp, but then also his friend, Mr. Key, who is made out of his own teeth. <laughs> and Mr. Key is able to uh, get Edmund out of the cell. Yeah, like uh, this is a cameo appearance by someone who'd pop up more in Blackadder. This is Rick Mail mm-hmm. of um, Drop Dead Fred fame. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Young Ones and all of those shows. This is a bit too madcap. He was always a very full-on right. actor. But when he's laughing, cackling for a full-on minute, that's the thing that was only funny to Rick Mail because right. his comic persona was being really, really irritating. Which was perfect in a lot of stuff, but in here he literally cackles for about 90 seconds, non-stop. Yeah. It is actually slightly maddening, which I think is the intended effect. It's a kind of performance that I sort of appreciate, but I'm also really glad it was only in like one scene. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's a a character that my brother and I absolutely loved as kids. Yeah. But watching it the other day, I was just like, oh God, shut up. Please stop laughing. <laughs> uh, coming back to the hawk, Philip of Burgundy. This actor doesn't have many credits, but he was also the narrator of the entire series. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is a neat touch because it's like it's him. It goes. It turns out it's him telling the entire story of the Black Adder. Right. But this is definitely a role that would have been played in later series by Stephen Fry. Oh. So in later that series. That would have been interesting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, what's missing in this one? You've got Brian Blessed. And some other people who didn't really go on to do anything else. But right. in 2, 3, and 4, you see increasingly larger roles for Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Oh, and right. Hugh Laurie, of course, fantastic. Yeah, and their characters are fantastic, and their voices are great, and their acting styles are perfect for the new kind of dynamic of later Blackadder. Mm-hmm. And it culminates in Stephen Fry in Series 4, which I think is probably the greatest comic performance of all time. Nice. Yeah, yeah no, I, I really, I, I really do have to watch. I think the rest of Blackadder. Yeah, yeah, two and four are my favorites, but two, yeah. three, and four, they're all great. He uh, manages to steal some uh, some homing pigeons, some black homing pigeons, to uh, because they have to be black. He says they'll send a black-haired messenger mm-hmm. to alert his evil friends. Mm-hmm. There's a bit here too where the guy says basically like. Well, I mean, you know, this is what they cost, but you could have them for less if you, you know, savagely beat me and bound me and, and you know, gagged me and tied me to a tree. And then that's precisely what he does. Somehow. Uh, yeah, we kind of skip. We kind of skip that. And we just kind of skip <laughs> toward like he's bound to the tree and uh, Edmund's riding off with the pigeons. Yeah. The pigeons are uh, sent are sent off and all of the uh, the evil, evil individuals gather at the castle. Mm-hmm. And Philip of Burgundy shows up as well. And Edmund manages to convince them all that they should be following Philip instead of him mm-hmm. by explaining all of the ways in which Philip is particularly evil. Mm-hmm. And they love evil stuff. Yeah, so they're, of course, uh, and at some point he's like, he murdered his whole family. And they're like, oh, so did I. And at some point one is like, well, I murdered yours. He's like, oh, you did? Great job. <laughs> <laughs> that ends up with them all joining him. And this is, uh, this. the ending was not entirely what I expected. Mm. So, uh, Edmund is placed in this torture contraption. Mm-hmm. Percy and Baldrick 
seem to be saving the day in that they uh, managed to get all of the evil men to drink poisoned wine. Mm-hmm. Then it turns out they've poisoned the rest of the wine. Mm-hmm. So just in the brief moment in which uh, Richard remembers Edmund's name for the first time, mm-hmm. and they're all very proud of him and tear up, you know, at some point, uh, you know, they are talking about his, uh, his chances of, uh, you know, he, Edmund thinks he's like, oh, like, I'm going to survive because he has been through this torture contraption. And yeah. Harry's like, oh, no, I meant like your chances of going to heaven. <laughs> But they all drink a toast to him, which it turns out is with the same vat of poisoned wine. Mm-hmm. And they all die. That's it. <laughs> the entire court. Mm-hmm. And so Edmund is briefly king because he dies like 45 seconds after his father and brother. Yeah, good for him. He got there. And it ends by saying that he's, oh, I guess I'm the king of it. And then there he goes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a very um, <laughs> British comedy in the 80s ending to a series, especially right. the fact that everyone drinks the poison and then your reaction to the poison is you grab your ear, fall to the ground, and then your legs wriggle and you're dead. Right. I think there's actually a, a joke about that on, uh, I rewatched Community recently because I needed oh, yeah? something to watch that was, you know, short episodes. And on Community at some point, there's a British TV show that they're watching, mm-hmm. which is uh, supposedly the original British version of Cougar Town. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that the... It's that it's, you know, only one season. The season is six episodes long. And at the end of the episode, they all, uh, they all like drink poison and die in precisely that manner. Exactly. Again, it's another kind of, I think, again, this is Python's fault. Because when they didn't know how to end a sketch, they just have something stupid like cut to the studio audience or the major mm-hmm. walks in and tells them to stop or everyone dies. And that's the end. Right. I mean, with Holy Grail very much also kind of falling into that. And that Holy Grail is like they all get arrested by 20th century police. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I taught that recently, actually. And, uh, you know, some of my students loved the ending and some of them were like, it drives me nuts that it doesn't have an ending. (laughs) It's a very um, effective kind of trolling device. Right. But yes, but I guess this is the explanation for how Henry Tudor, in fact, does become king, uh, Mm because we we actually know he survived because Edmund actually also, in addition to accidentally killing Richard III in the first episode, (laughs) he also accidentally saves and nurses back to health Henry Tudor. Whoops. Who is is played by an actor who I don't know, but is a remarkable likeness. Yes, I was really impressed by that. Because at first, I was not even sure if he, I was like, he has to be supposed to be Henry Tudor, right? Because he just really looks like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very uh, well-chosen bit parter. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about the show in general before we uh, get into some of the uh, the historical? It was an interesting rewatch in general for something that's very close to my heart and part of my childhood. I rewatched it somewhat probably the last time when I was in my 20s and thought, yeah, yeah. this isn't as good as the others. But rewatching it now, there's a lot more kind of oof moments. Yeah. Or that wouldn't happen now moments. But I'm also safe in the knowledge that Rowan Atkinson is one of these old people are just choosing to get offended dingbats. Right. The idea there is I think he'd be pretty unapologetic. In fact, the last thing I heard was they were planning a new Blackadder series about snowflake students on campus. Oh, dear. And I was just like, oh, guys, guys. Yeah, maybe don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's no need for it, you know. 
You're yeah. the you you guys have all the power now. Don't get annoyed about stuff like that. Why do you even have to think about what happens on campus? Right, and especially when you see the like people who are in power and who are these like elder statesmany adult mm-hmm. like you know older actors, and it's like we're just so upset by like young people who are like complaining about injustice, and it's like really, <laughs> that's what that's what you care about. Totally, yeah. But <sighs> like I said earlier, he's he's made plenty of bank. He can do whatever he wants. He could do a Johnny English occasionally and so on. And I don't know, he doesn't seem to have anything that he needs to complain about. Yeah, no, he seems like he's doing fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me going off on a tangent. Blackadder's a great show and it started shakily, is my conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I I haven't seen the rest of Blackadder, Hmm. but I, except for the cringe stuff, I actually liked a lot of things Mm -hmm. about it. That like a lot of the comedy, especially like a number of the like historical jokes, like really hit for me. Yeah. Like, including some things that, you know, I felt like some kind of had, like, the spirit of a medieval uh, of mm-hmm. medieval reference, uh, even yeah. if they didn't quite have the letter of them. <laughs> so, as I said, a lot of it a lot of it did really work for me in terms of the comedy and in terms of a... I, I've always liked when there are medieval comedies, because yeah. at least it gets away from the, like, everybody was, like, wearing grey covered in dirt and depressed. Yeah. Uh, narrative that you often have about the Middle Ages. I get it. So uh, there, there are definitely things I appreciated. And I, there's something I forgot to say early in the first episode. There's what I call a moment of flintstoning, where you put an element mm-hmm. of 20th century life into the past, where he wakes up late for the battle and turns a sundial yes. towards himself. <laughs> and so at first you're probably thinking, oh, is that is it going to be that kind of comedy where everything has a 20th century analogy? But it's the only time it does it. And it's really silly. That's the kind of madcap spirit that I like in, in an early 80s comedy. Yeah, it's very silly. I'm glad they didn't have just all that. Mm-hmm. But that actually, but like it worked for me as, a, as like a, you know, a one-off joke yeah, that yeah. like he has the like sundial making an alarm clock noise. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as I said, when the humor wasn't relying on like rape jokes and gay jokes, it I thought was very good. Like there's also even this bit that... uh they're talking about the uh, the currency and it's like in the uh, opening crawl yeah. to one episode and it's uh, the year in which the egg replaced the worm as the lowest form of currency. <laughs> like, this yeah. is a great line. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of lovely moments like that, especially in the opening crawls. Do you think, yeah. without me constantly waxing on uh, positive about the other series, would this make you want to see subsequent series? It does, yeah. I mean, mm. so I was actually... I was actually surprised in some ways to hear that this was the worst. Mm. And that actually makes me excited to want to watch the rest mm. because like, as I said, like, I didn't think this was bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I, you know, there were these moments here and there, you know, where the jokes really have not held up. Yeah. But other than that, like just as a, you know, as like a comedy, it, it worked. Like I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Like I thought the, uh, the characterization was done well. I mm-hmm. thought a lot of the jokes were funny. Yeah. So yeah, I actually would totally watch the, uh, the rest of it. Good, good. Grand. Yeah. This way now I think we can get into some of our uh, historical content mm-hmm. in the Vera et Falso section where we talk about what it got right and what it got wrong. There's obviously a lot, so I've just picked out uh, a few things in particular to talk about for this section and then uh, some stuff to get into for the uh, the Historia at Veritas, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not going to quite talk about everything. Okay. I'll start with a few things that uh, they didn't get quite right. One is the uh, the crusade against uh, the Ottoman Turks. Perhaps you can excuse it by virtue of it being an alternate timeline. Uh-huh. But uh, although there were several crusades that were called against the Ottoman Turks, both before and after their conquest of Constantinople in 1453, yeah. 
None of them involved England or the English. Uh, that basically they seem to have primarily, when you're talking about these 15th century crusades, uh, this one was 1486. There actually was one called in, I think, 1481. But basically, except for a few people in Italy, nobody seemed to care very much. Okay. You obviously have the much later uh, offensive against the Ottomans in the 16th century, culminating the Battle of Lepanto. But mm -hmm. that also was actually an, uh, an alliance which... Uh, England, those Protestant heretics don't uh, don't actually take part in. Right. No, thank you. <laughs> and I believe I did not look this up, so I'm just going on memory on this. But I yeah. believe actually Elizabeth had some uh, Queen Elizabeth the first had something of a relationship with the Ottomans, due hmm. in part to the fact basically that neither of them are doing very well with assorted Catholic powers. Makes sense strategically. And so she sort of yeah, she sort of reaches out as basically a like you know this is an ally where I don't have to kind of get into this whole like oh wait the Pope has basically just invited everybody to kill me thing. <laughs> So it actually makes sense to me. Do I believe, as I said, we have like correspondence uh, that has survived between, I guess, like Elizabeth's ambassador yeah, and uh, Sultan. Yeah. Oh, so okay. this crusade is very much an invented one, although, even if it does obviously draw on some other tropes of the brutality of mm -hmm. crusading. Yeah. The Pope jokes. So first we have the pardon that's signed by two popes, and then we refer to the uh, that all three popes uh, <laughs> that uh, that the nun, the mother superior, has reported Edmund to all three popes yeah. to encourage them to remove him from office. <laughs> it's a great, great schism joke, and I love a good great schism <laughs> joke. But the great schism had ended seventy years before in fourteen seventeen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we referenced it before, I think, when I was talking about uh, Hawks Wood. Right. The both popes thing doesn't get a big laugh because I think even then people would have just been like, is that a joke? I don't know, but it, <laughs> it did get me as a history nerd. Yeah, that was one of the ones that got a big laugh from me. And uh -huh. as I said, I really liked the joke, but then a part of me was like, no, this is too late for that. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. So, but there was, of course, I mean, there was a long period of two popes and a brief period of there, in fact, being three popes uh -huh. because at the first council where they tried to resolve this, they just like named a third pope. Yeah. But uh, that pope was named and then, but that they didn't actually get the other two popes to step down. So oh, they just okay. still had, uh, at, at that time, so then now they just had three popes. Right. And then at the next council, the Council of Constance, they got all three of them to step down and came up with a completely new pope. <laughs> Well done. Well, I think one of them kind of hung on for a bit, but basically kind of lost all of his, adher as his adherents, <laughs> except for uh, he was uh, he was from the Kingdom of Aragon and uh, kind of kept some some friends there. Oh, okay. The uh, the last of the Avignon popes, but right. uh, basically kind of ended with the Council of Constance in 1417. Okay. All right. So way before yeah. this. Yeah, way before this. Mm -hmm. So especially if we're saying that, you know, the alternate timeline really starts in like 1485. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't even quite excuse it <laughs> unless we're saying a lot of other weird things are happening. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that is, I would say, in something of a spirit of a medieval world and a good joke, but not quite right, is our saints days. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the veneration of saints and the celebration of their feasts would have been an important part of medieval religious culture. Mm -hmm. But these particular saints' days are, uh, are not quite accurate. No. I looked up in particular St. Leonard. Mm -hmm. There is a St. Leonard. His feast is celebrated on November 6th. And I think he would have been quite surprised to hear about the festivities, which include eunuchs, bearded ladies, Morris dancers, yeah. uh, the jumping Jews of Jerusalem. <laughs> And about the fact that the eunuchs are of particular importance because he was said to be a eunuch, which... <laughs> right. 
again, I, I think that would have come as quite a surprise to, uh, to poor St. Leonard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like the thing as well that these, that Prince Harry is horrified that there might not be eunuchs or bearded women at the feast day of right. St. Leonard. Like this happens every year. Right. Yeah. That this is just always, this is what we do on the feast of St. Leonard. That being said, eunuchs are not really, I mean, so there are like the eunuch singers that we actually do have some of those, but not, but those are really a bit later. Yeah. Eunuchs are, I would say when you're talking about eunuchs in a medieval context, mm. they're more often like court functionaries than entertainers. Right. Like, um, didn't the Sultan have eunuchs guarding his concubines or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That they're, they're very popular actually, uh, in the Ottoman empire, but actually before that in the Byzantine empire, because eunuchs, a, uh, you know, in this harem situation, they're these men who are, you know, presumed as being people who it is impossible Mm -hmm. for your wife to cheat on you with them. And certainly at least for them to impregnate her and uh, uh, raise doubtful issues about, you know, the uh, legitimacy of their children. So there's the benefit of that. And then in the Byzantine Empire, we have a lot of eunuchs who are these uh, these kind of big deal advisors and court functionaries, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because in that context... A lot of people end up becoming emperor who don't have what you might strictly consider to be like a claim based on heritage. Right. So basically you just have a number of people who are just like generals and people like them. Yes. So the great thing about eunuchs is that eunuchs are not eligible to be emperor because you can't have any kind of physical deformity. Right. Okay. And in fact, even like castration uh, happens on occasion as it's not, it's not quite as popular as blinding. No. But uh, castration does happen on occasion as a way to make somebody ineligible specifically okay. for uh, for the office of emperor. Yeah, okay. I didn't know that. So eunuchs are great because, you know, they, I mean, they could betray you by, you know, setting up somebody else, mm-hmm. but they're at least not going to replace you as emperor. Yeah, okay. With reference to the jumping Jews of Jerusalem. Yes. Firstly, that's a good callback. Like, they're mentioned early in the episode, and then there's a hard cut to them later in the festivities. Right, because it's like, what do they do? Well, they they jump. (laughs) (laughs) And as one of them walks off stage, one of the actors asks them, how did it go? And he takes off his fake beard, first of all, and he says, Mm -hmm. not bad. I don't think they really got it. Um, I don't know. Yes, the jumping Jews of Jerusalem were not popular, apparently. (laughs) I don't know what's going on there, but it did prompt me to look up the aftermath of King Edward's expulsion order. Yeah, so there would not really have been Jews in England in 1486, unless that too is part of the alternative history, (laughs) and and, uh, King Richard IV let the Jews back into England. (laughs) (laughs) So that made me think, is that why he's taking the beard off? Is he like pretending to be a Jew or... That was my guess yeah. is that he's, yeah, pretending at Jewishness, right. which yeah would have made more sense in that there aren't supposed to be any Jews in England. Yeah. Uh, and also kind of fits into the fact this is a period in which, you know, they're putting on these like vaguely or not so vaguely anti-Semitic mystery plays. Right. And uh, so that those do also involve like people playing as Jews, although mm-hmm. in a much more unsavory way than the uh, than the jumping Jews of Jerusalem. Yes. So that was how, and so that was how I was taking that—that that they're not really Jews. Do you think uh, the in-episode play "Death of the Pharaoh" would have been something like that? Ah, uh, potentially. I mean, I don't think that the Egyptian content would have been quite so popular right. at this particular moment in time. Yeah. But they certainly did. Yeah, they had that sort of—they uh, did have like that sort of play. Yeah. I know there is like there's a very popular play about Noah. There's also certainly like okay. plays that got put out put on around Easter, like about Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, which consider which includes some like 
super not great scenes without the Jews killing Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, the death of the Pharaoh play is, is a bit of a surprise given it's pre-Shakespeare, but it's weird. We're kind of taught that he's the genesis of everything, but of course there were plays before Shakespeare. That's what he came from. Right, right. yeah, no, of course there are. Mm-hmm. So, so certainly, like, there being, like, a play at court as part of the entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, that'll certainly uh, kind of take as a possibility. Oh, okay. There's a lot of English uh, of English drama of the 14th and 15th centuries. Yeah, for sure. I also wanted to mention St. Juniper's Day. Mm-hmm. St. Juniper was a uh, Franciscan friar who died in 1258, so he's a companion of St. Francis. I think he too would have been a little surprised about these like massive land transfers happening mm-hmm. as a celebration of his feast day, since while he was known for some perhaps excessive giving, yeah. it was uh, much less kind of politically motivated and much more charitable, Okay, including actually some odd episodes that apparently St. Juniper had a reputation among his fellow Franciscans of don't leave your shit lying around or St. Juniper is going to take it and give it to the poor. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which is lovely of him. But also, like, if you're like, fuck, all the begging bowls have disappeared. Oh, God, St. Juniper gave them away again, didn't he? (laughs) Including there's this whole story about him that so he's, like, taking care of some poor sick man who says, uh, you know, who, like, has a craving for pig's feet. Yeah. So he says, great. He goes off. He finds a pig. He doesn't even, I think, kill the pig. He just cuts off the pig's foot, takes off, and makes this guy some soup with the pig's foot. (laughs) And then the guy who owns this pig shows up and is like, dude, what the hell? And he's like, no, but I did it for this. And the guy's like, yeah, no, like, what the hell? And he just, like, explains the story again. He's like, no, I did it because of this this guy. He was sick and he really wanted pig's feet. I had to take care of him. And then finally the guy just, like, gave up, basically. He's like, oh, fine, whatever. (laughs) That is... Slightly different model of giving for the real St. Juniper than uh, what we see here. The thing that I think it did do really well is the false relics. Mm -hmm. I was really happy with since the proliferation of false relics is a big thing in the medieval world. I mean, so we know that there's like multiple churches who claim to have like the heads of John, like the head of John the Baptist and the breasts of St. Agatha. Uh And all sorts of other, you know, especially popular relics. And so, you know, clearly, clearly some of them at least are fake. The way I sometimes put it for some of these relics is that, well, it certainly was someone's arm. (laughs) It just might not have been the, because we actually, we've done x-rays. Yeah. On reliquary. So there's this like, there's this reliquary that's supposed to be like the arm of one of the apostles. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like they've x-rayed it and it's like, yeah, no, it definitely like has an arm, but like this is definitely a human arm bone inside of it. Yeah. It's like, it's probably not an apostle, but yeah, no, I'm <laughs> sure it is some dude's arm. I'm not sure if he was joking or not, but I remember my history teacher told us there was one church in medieval times which had a child's skull. And they said, this was John the Baptist's skull from when he was a child. Like would people have been... <laughs> Would people have been that credulous? I don't think so. I think he was either joking or someone had misled him. That I don't think people would have been that credulous, but certainly there were cases in which they maybe didn't look that closely at the particular skulls. Right. So uh, my favorite example of this is that there is the uh, the chapel dedicated to St. Ursula and her, oh, how many were there? 11,000 virgin companions. Oh, wow. Who were supposedly all martyred. Uh-huh. And so there is this chapel in, uh, I think it's in Cologne, which is literally just like a room made of bones. It's fantastic. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's one of them in Portugal, in uh, Evora. 
yeah, those are great. But so it has all of these skulls in it, yeah. which they were like, well, it's the skulls of Ursula and her 11,000 virgins. Yeah. But recent examination of the skulls has revealed that some belong to men, mm -hmm. some belong to children, and some belong to large dogs. Oh, okay, so something extra <laughs> nasty happened. I mean, it probably was basically just a mass grave. Yeah. I mean, like it was probably, I mean, it was probably like a cemetery, basically oh, that I was see. like centuries of bones. <laughs> and then they just like dug this up and are like, oh, it's Ursula and her eleven thousand virgins. Don't look too But close. not paying attention, yeah, that it's not <laughs> all the remains of women. Uh, yeah. And while maybe they couldn't have been able to tell at that time what's a man's skull versus a woman's skull, I think certainly they should have been able to pick out the dogs if they've been looking a bit more carefully. <laughs> You'd hope so. The one note that I will make about things that they don't get quite right in the false relics is that they have a number of references to bodily relics of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that they have the uh, the finger uh, or ten fingers of mm -hmm. our Lord. Yeah. They also have Jesus's nose. Uh -huh. And you don't have bodily relics of Jesus because Jesus was bodily assumed into heaven with presumably all of his fingers and nose. Yeah. <laughs> the one exception to this, and I think they really missed an opportunity here, yeah. is of course the foreskin of Christ. Right. Because since uh, Jesus was circumcised, there were churches in the Middle Ages that claimed to have his foreskin. And there were some who thought the foreskin should have been reattached in heaven. <laughs> because like circumcision is deeply inessential because, you know, we're Christians and we're rejecting this. But others, uh, you know, accepted the possibility that the foreskin and actually also uh, the umbilical cord <laughs> connecting Christ and the Virgin Mary right. could have remained on earth. Yeah. I think they really missed a good uh, joke opportunity here by not actually having a box of foreskins of Christ. Yeah, I don't know. Thinking about it, like I think a foreskin reference on a BBC comedy show would have been more controversial than all the dodgy uh, rape stuff in this show. Oh dear. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. <laughs> I, I honestly think they wouldn't have been allowed to say that word. That's fascinating. Cause, yeah, because that seems to me that seems to me to be pretty tame compared to some of the stuff that does get in. <laughs> But uh, yeah, because that is that is too bad. It would have been fun to have references to like a box of like four skins of Christ. <laughs> the other thing that I will say didn't uh, hit me as quite right is that it also references they have the uh, the breasts of Joan of Arc. Okay. And I don't think there would have been at this point really English veneration mm. of Joan of Arc. Yeah. I mean, there would have been French veneration uh, by now, I would say, of Joan of Arc. But yeah. in England, she's, you know, this like this French woman that like they killed. Yeah, basically. Uh, did, did they burn her as a witch or just as an enemy? Witch and heretic. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Double and cross-dresser. Oh, okay. Triple barreled. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, they very explicitly talk about the cross-dressing as being like a major problem. Ouch. Yes, I talked about that in a recent episode, which will, I think, be coming out before this one. Oh, okay. It's not out at the time of recording. Cool. The English in 1486, I think, are still thinking of Joan of Arc as uh, maybe maybe not quite one of theirs. Yeah, yeah, they don't think, yeah, they don't think so greatly of her yet. I also did appreciate that we have a, a the Black Death epidemic, mm -hmm. and while people's initial response might be, well, this is too late for the Black Death, it in fact is not, because the Black Death as an epidemic does not stop in, you know, 1350. There are recurrent Black Death epidemics. Mm -hmm. I poked around a little bit. I didn't find specifically a reference to there being 
exactly one in England in 1495, and I doubt they did either. I'm sure they just basically are like the Black Death. That's a medieval disease. Exactly. But it is the case that there were certainly epidemics in England and elsewhere in, uh, you know, throughout the 14th to 7 to about 17th centuries. Totally. Famously, the uh, Great Fire of London in 1666 mm -hmm. was the end of a plague epidemic because it chased all the rats or burned them underground. Right. Yeah. And I think that was the last, at least in England, that was the last big plague epidemic. Yeah, that's right. I believe. Yeah. And then finally, the other thing I wanted to bring up that I think it actually gets fairly right mm -hmm. is that I appreciate that it has a reference to child marriage, but also emphasizes the fact that this is not a consummated marriage. No. Because uh, that is... I mean, it's one of the very unsavory things about, you know, things like Game, like Game of Thrones, for example, it very much has this like, well, I mean, we have to like have a, you know, 12 year olds uh, being raped essentially mm -hmm. in these, you know, child marriages, because like, that's how it worked back then. Uh -huh. And while there were a lot of child marriages, in fact, I think actually, uh, I think Richard Duke of York, uh, the, uh, the Richard, the King Richard the mm Fourth. -hmm. Uh, I think he actually was technically like engaged or married at age like seven. Oh, okay. But with these child marriages, the expectation is not that you consummate the marriage until not. you kind of reach at least like early teens. Yeah. So I appreciate the acknowledgement of the fact that, okay, so we have this marriage, but then we just see like Edmund, you know, reading her a bedtime story. As he would. It's half past six. Uh, it's half past six. <laughs> I do appreciate the fact that like they have a, you know, they have a marriage that's a child marriage for political reasons, uh -huh. but that it's very much emphasized that this marriage has to happen because of the politics, but that doesn't mean that anyone is expecting this child no. to be having sex with an adult man. No, no, it doesn't cross that disgusting bridge. No. Which, which I think we can be thankful for. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> No, their their relationship is actually uh, very sweet. And as I said before, she uh, is. for a, a child actor, she knocks it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. no, she's great. Yeah, yeah I, I really liked her during the witch episode where she's like laughing at his funny shaved head. <laughs> With that, we can now move into the Historia ad Veritas section where I want to talk about a little bit of uh, what happened and what we know and don't know about this actual past having to do with Richard III and his nephews and how this then ends up getting talked about in subsequent generations. Mm -hmm. The traditional claim is, of course, the one that the princes, uh, so these are uh, Richard's brother's sons, uh, Edward, who briefly would have been Edward V, and that one is counted in our overall numbering, and mm -hmm. Richard, yes. disappeared in around the year 1483. Mm -hmm. The traditional explanation is that Richard uh, had them killed, mm -hmm. but we honestly have no idea whether he did or not. We know that he declared them illegitimate, that there's a kind of bill, titulus regius, which says that they are not legitimate and don't have a claim to the throne. Mm -hmm. Well, on the one hand, this doesn't necessarily mean they're no longer a threat. It does seem like there is some possibility that it's kind of something that could be used to basically avoid having to kill them off. Yes. In terms of uh, kind of making this declaration that like, well, they don't actually have any rights anyway. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. And essentially, like we all of the kind of claims that Richard killed them uh, come from a bit later. I mean, they come from when Henry was already in power. Yeah, there's something a little bit suspicious about that. And also about the fact that Henry Tudor, although he was very quick to say a lot of insulting things about Richard right after he acceded to the throne, mm -hmm. he doesn't actually make the claim about the princes until a full year after Richard is killed and he takes the throne. Right after Richard is buried in a car park. Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> which seems a bit strange, because you would think, like, if that was a thing that everybody kind of knew and was aware of, that he would be bringing it up right away. Yeah, yeah, it would be good propaganda. 
but uh, yeah. they laid off a bit, you know, got over the Wars of the Roses and then were like, actually, do you know what? Right. As I said, you know, we have really no way of knowing for sure what's happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been some bones discovered, but they actually keep refusing to do DNA tests. So we don't know if that's whose bones they are or not. There's a possibility that they died. But if they did, we don't know who killed them. Uh, Some people have said it could be Henry Tudor. Right. Kind of came up, uh, you know, took the throne. Then is like, oh, we've still got those kids in this tower over here. Let's go ahead and murder them quick. Okay which, you know, doesn't not make sense Mm -hmm. as a possible theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a couple of pretenders that actually claim to be Richard Mm -hmm. later. And it's, you know, and one of them was apparently Perkin Warbeck was apparently really convincing. Perkin Warbeck. Yeah, I remember that name. Yeah, like he managed to convince like his his alleged like the person who would have been his aunt, which like, Okay. And so there are like, most people don't actually think that he necessarily was Richard. No. But some people think he actually might have been like a like illegitimate son of Edward IV. Oh, okay. So also risky. Yeah. So apparently he did at least like bear a striking resemblance. Okay. To Edward IV. Okay. The other thing that we know from one of our earliest sources is that Edward seems to have like been ill and been regularly seeing a doctor. Okay. And so it's also not impossible that he died, but that he just, like, died. Yeah, yeah, of course. We have no idea, but I actually think that it's interesting that it starts with this alternative history that undermines the, like, Richard killed his nephew's claim. Yeah, from the start. Yeah, and in particular that, of course, you know, most of what we get in terms of the Shakespeare, in terms of, like, the narrative that most people think of first when they think about Richard III is this Shakespearean narrative, Mm -hmm. which, A, is being written in the context of uh, Shakespeare is working for Queen Elizabeth I, who is Henry Tudor's granddaughter. And so in all of Shakespeare's history plays, the allegiances are very, very clear there. Yeah. So it makes sense that this is, you know, something that he's certainly going to emphasize. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that, like, even goes uh, really hard on, like, Richard III is a terrible person. So including the claim that, like, he murdered his, that, like, he also murdered his wife. And, like, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, you know. It's a real, uh, it's the Obama gate of its day. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. So... As I said, you know, we we almost certainly will never actually know like uh-huh. what happened to to those kids. Uh-huh. But I think this alternative history does an interesting job in tapping into the fact that there is that doubt, mm-hmm. and that while there is some tra- this traditional narrative, there at least there certainly would not be enough evidence according to like modern standards of proof. No, but it is remarkable to, to me. Richard. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, remarkable to me that that history teachers still have to teach that nobody really knows the princess in the tower is a very evocative thing as a brit and everyone yeah knows what you're referring to when you say that i don't know if it's still the case but tudors and stewarts were stalwarts of the curriculum when i was growing up mm-hmm. and i think that was partially so that teachers a had an excuse to take you to see some shakespeare free trip to london right and b had an excuse to wheel in the tv and pop on an episode of blackadder if they were hung over right <laughs> <laughs> Or get the substitute to do it when they're sick. Right. Yeah. Have the kids seen Blackadder yet? Right. Lesson plan. Right. And I actually really like that uh, with that first episode in particular. There's this bit where you first see him as this like as like the hunchback in terms of how he's uh, he's typically portrayed. Mm -hmm. They actually have found evidence that there are the portraits that portray Richard as having a hunchback Mm -hmm. were actually altered later. Oh, okay. So he probably did have. basically like i think in in terms of like they they like exam like i think now they think that he probably basically had like 
something like scoliosis. And so he had maybe like a kind of mild like bat condition essentially, but that it wouldn't have been the like exaggerated humpback that you see, you know, the like that you see in, Mm -hmm. uh, in most Richard the third productions, including this one. Right. And, uh, but in here it's very much seen that like, he's kind of like doing that, but then it like is made clear that it's like a lump of clothes under his clothing (laughs) that he then like takes out of there, like a pillow under his clothes (sighs) that he then like takes off. Yeah. It's a, Yeah, a decent sight gag. The timeline here, though, is kind of weird Mm -hmm. because it actually ages up. So first of all, I think it's interesting that it, like, it, I guess, just kills off Edward, who is the older of the princes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it presumes, you know, he he perhaps, you know, he maybe just, he just died. Yeah. And it has Richard, who's the one who becomes king. Mm -hmm. But it, like, really ages him up because he becomes king then in 1485, at which point, like, he's, it's actually not Brian Blessed in the first episode, I think. It's him starting in the second episode. yeah but still like he's you know he's like a bearded adult yeah yeah he's middle-aged he was born in 1473 right so uh at richard iii's uh death that he would have been 12 years old (laughs) so not quite a strapping adult with two sons who are already over 12 yes exactly (laughs) he grew up to be a big strong lad as the introduction says Yes, a big, strong lad who apparently at the age of, like, nine fathered two children. (laughs) Both of whom then immediately were apparently, I guess, sprung fully formed like Athena from their father's head. Yeah, doesn't light up. Very frustrating. So that's actually, I would say, like, the thing that, like, most annoys me about the alternate history is that, like, but he's not a grown-up. So, like, actually, I I feel like it would have made more sense if at least if it was about, like... The two princes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is that if it was like Edward and then uh, and then Edmund was like Richard, yeah. or he was like some third prince or something who everyone forgot about or whatever. There you go. So this way we can move on to the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about our own story that we would like to create inspired by this one. Mm-hmm. Would you like to go first? Sure. It's kind of difficult to say. Uh, here's an idea for one of the greatest British comedy series of all time. Right. Why didn't they fair. do this? <laughs> I do think the six most evil men would be a mm-hmm. fun show to watch, especially if they were played by well-known comic actors at the time. Maybe the cast of The Young Ones would have been mm-hmm. a really good choice for that, including Rick Mayle, who I was talking about earlier. But as for periods that Blackadder missed, let's see, they did The Wars of the Roses, basically, Elizabethan times, the, what would you call it, George III, and mm-hmm. uh, World War One. So what's missing, I think, is the Reformation, Henry VIII. right which I talked about before, but then every episode would be Six Wives Reformation dominated. Yeah. Uh, And the big one that's missing is the English Civil War. Right. I don't know, maybe if you had uh, Cavalier Blackadder and Hugh Laurie as King Charles, as a kind of bumbling, idiotic King Charles, but then it would just be a melange of all four seasons. Right. I can prescribe nothing except a historical period that they missed, and it's unimaginable (laughs) because it just wouldn't be... Blackadder if I thought it up. Right. It could be interesting to have done in earlier Middle Ages as well. Uh, yeah, true. Norman Conquest or... Yeah, I think the Norman Conquest would have been fascinating. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, I don't know, really. Certainly not. I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't prescribe a, a fifth series about snowflake students. No, definitely <laughs> not. I had a slightly kind of different direction in that. Mm-hmm. One of the big ways in which this show, I think, does uh, kind of fall down is in uh, our depiction of women. Mm-hmm. This movie, I would say, passes the Ift Decker test. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't, actually, because everybody dies. <laughs> and I believe that does include the uh, the mother and the wife, mm-hmm. although the mother 
does not have a name in the actual show, so she doesn't even count. Right. I'm, I'm not counting people who are only named in the credits. Okay. It does not pass the Ift Decker test and really only has, the queen is really the only, I would say, really major female character. She's certainly the only one who appears in, I think, all episodes. Right, okay. What could you do? This is not quite Black Adder. This is sort of a different thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it could have been interesting if you were going to have some sort of alternative history at around this time. Uh I think an interesting figure who gets totally left out of this, who might have been interesting to talk about, would have been Elizabeth of York, Uh Richard IV's sister, Ah. who, of course, in real history, goes on to marry Henry Tudor and is the mother of uh, Henry VIII Uh and assorted others. I think she could have been an interesting figure to have kind of played with as maybe also being perhaps this sort of ineffectual schemer. Mm-hmm. In particular, because I think there is this, I mean, there is this sense that perhaps, you know, that she, I mean, she actually agreed or basically there seems to have been an arrangement made before Henry actually became king that this marriage was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so if you were going to do this alternative timeline, I think it would have been fun to have Elizabeth. She was actually this traitor in the court who was going to get to, you know, be queen and supplant her brothers mm-hmm. by uh, marrying Henry VII and then is thwarted in those ambitions. And so you have uh, her as a kind of scheming figure off to the side. Yeah, great. It would not be Blackadder. It would be its own thing. Yeah. But I think it could be fun to have a woman who played that kind of role. Okay. Yeah, me too. Of, uh, of being this, this kind of scheming figure, but who one who is not ultimately really like very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> A slapstick Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that could I think that could be fun because yeah. that was like that was a dynamic that I liked about this. And uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah maybe maybe doing a bit of a gender swap. And yeah, I think Elizabeth of York would be an interesting candidate for that. Yeah, she is great. I don't actually know who I would have play her. I'd have to think about that a bit more, especially because I think really for this I do want to make sure to actually get somebody British. And I yeah, I don't know actresses of the yeah. time. Well, in the second series of Blackadder, Queen Elizabeth is played by Miranda Richardson to oh. absolutely incredible effect. Actually, yeah. my comedic performances thing, I said Stephen Fry in four, but Miranda Richardson in two is up there. Mm. She's hysterical as Elizabeth I. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that yeah, please do. I don't really know many young mm. British comedic actresses okay. offhand. No. Olivia Coleman was in Peep Show mm. and The Favourite. Right. And she has that kind of hapless energy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it could be, but she's too big for that now. She's won an Oscar. Right, yeah. So I think maybe, you know, this would be this would be the kind of show where you like find some find some new talent maybe and yeah. and then, you know, have some of the uh the kind of smaller roles played by uh some some more classic figures. Uh, you know, maybe maybe uh Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie would uh <laughs> would come back for some roles in this. Uh. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think maybe we would want like a new face. Yeah. And yeah, and I don't know who are like British stand-up comics who mm. might be breaking into acting now, uh, mm. but yeah. but that would be maybe the direction I'd go. Oh, great. Yeah, I'd watch it. Our next section, the Estimatio, is where we can rate this film on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria you see fit. So would you like to go first with your rating? Okay, sure. I th- I think it's really two and a half out of five, but I'm going to round up to three for sentimental value. <laughs> I think really some of the, when the jokes land, they're terrific. I particularly like, yeah. uh, I would say so myself. I, I, I agree with you there. I killed it myself at some point. Stuff like that. Very deadpan British humor is my vibe. And it's definitely what you get in the other Blackadder seasons. Mm-hmm. Overall, I don't think Rowan Atkinson is playing to his strengths. 
Right. There isn't so much physical comedy for him, which of course is his forte. I've seen Mr. Bean mm-hmm. playing all over the world. Yeah. There's a kind of half-strength supporting cast where Brian Blessed overwhelms everything by the force of personality yeah. and some great bit part turns. It's not a great start, but it's a promising start. And I'm glad they had these creases to iron out in order to gain um, uh, the better angels of our nature, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> a higher level of, of comedy was reached in subsequent seasons because right. they really had to find their feet. Yeah, I was thinking a three out of five as well, which for me is, I feel like to some extent, like, there are a lot of jokes in here that I feel like I was very much the audience for <laughs> in terms of like, they make a lot of like solid medieval jokes. Yeah. And they're not always quite accurate, but there are like a lot of them are jokes that I think some deliberate and some not uh-huh. are really tapping into things about the Middle Ages, including like things that I find interesting and fun. Right. And so I think that, you know, I have a lot of appreciation for it for that. And that like, I don't often get to see people making jokes about the Middle Ages. No, true. that are actual like solid jokes as opposed to like haha everybody was murdered <laughs> um <laughs> which i guess does also happen here but yeah that was really what i liked about it but i think you know ultimately the i would even potentially give it higher were it not for the fact that it really as i said has so many of these uh, these gay jokes this kind of extended like you know fat joke about this poor, about this poor woman yeah. just a lot of material that feels really unpleasant and yeah. uh, and uh, and icky to watch now totally i get it but i am excited to watch more blackadder this is fun yeah man. it's great let me know if you want to do two it's early modern. All right, yeah, because yeah, that's that's close enough. I've have done some Elizabethan stuff uh, that uh, I'd, I'd include that. Oh, cool. So, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Well, last time I was on, I recommended follow me on Instagram, which is muitu underscore ben. But really, I, all I'd like to plug here is look up Miriam Margulies on YouTube. Her interviews are hysterical, okay. and look up Brian Blessed's episode of Richard Herring's podcast. And you get an idea hmm. of just what a mad bastard that man is. <laughs> I mean, this is Brian Blessed recently. He just talks nonstop. His, the energy is incredible. The man climbs Everest without oxygen tanks. And you can tell it's done something to him. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. He really was so much fun in this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as I said, you know, the the Augustus performance is much less comedic and much quieter. Yeah. But it has a bit of that, like, blustering yeah. energy. Yeah. And he really is, like, a character who takes over the screen. For sure. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Uh, I don't have one for today, unfortunately which means that we've we've got some space. If you, too, want to write a review, I will read it. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join our Facebook group. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. And finally, if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye-bye. History, here I come! Across the glade, good folk, lock up your son and daughter. Beware the deadly flashing blade, unless you want to end up short.